Good morning to you. Corinthian Christians, as we have discovered, were saved out of a sex-soaked society. Daily, a, a thousand heriodulai, or temple prostitutes from the temple of Aphrodite, would descend from their temple and ply their trade amongst the people of Corinth. Apollo's temple was also at Corinth, and as the representative male beauty, uh, Corinth became a center for homosexuality as the temple prostitutes of Apollo plied their trade there in the city. Ancient Corinth was a prosperous port city that we mentioned in our very first sermon together. Uh, it's a place where the geography was such where ships would avoid a long trip all the way around the Isthmus by coming to the port. They would, large ships would offload all their contents to a waiting ship on the other side. Smaller ships would be dragged on rollers across the city. Either way, uh, this, sailors knew that a trip to Corinth meant a few extra days at port, and they were always cheered at that report. We learned that biennially, every other year, uh, Corinth hosted the second most important athletic event in the ancient world, the uh, Isthmian Games, named after their isthmus. And so sports enthusiasts would come from throughout the empire, North Africa, Europe, uh, Asia Minor, and they would come to Corinth and, and they would enjoy the games and they would come far from the prying eyes of their wives and girlfriends. And so saints saved in Corinth had a particular problem. The, the, the situation was quite unsettling and frankly it was extremely tempting. And in 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul had to correct those who thought that as long as I give my heart to Jesus, what I do with my body doesn't really matter. And those folks had some faulty slogans. They thought that as a Christian, since all things are lawful for me, and since food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is meant for food, they urged, well, since God has given me this urge, let's splurge and sow our wild oats to our content. Now, other Christians saved in the same sex-soaked society, they took the other perspective, and they said, well, you know what? The problem here is sex. And so, so we're going to avoid sex entirely. And even if we're married, somehow they thought that they should be celibate. In fact, they thought, you know, if I'm married, maybe it's more spiritual to be single. And they started thinking about divorcing their spouses to somehow be more holy. Those who were saved to someone who was not yet a Christian. So they were a mixed marriage. They'd come to Christ. Their spouse hadn't come to Christ. That saved person began to wonder, well, does intimacy with my unsaved spouse somehow defile me spiritually? And if so, then, then maybe I should divorce. Some began to wonder, well, what about our kids? If I'm unequally yoked, uh, should I leave the marriage for the sake of the children and the influence we have upon one another? Then there were the engaged people, and they began to wonder, maybe it's better to delay our nuptials indefinitely and just not go through with getting married. The widowed wondered, should we remain widowed forever, when in fact there were very few jobs open to widows, and the chief way God provided for widows was for them to marry someone and, and for them to come under the protection of the new household. So uh, these questions were very, very, very critical in a place like Corinth. And the question was simple, the question was simply this, can only the lonely be truly holy? That is the question in 1 Corinthians 7. That is the key to understanding this passage. This passage is going to speak about sex, it's going to speak about marriage, it's going to speak about uh, singleness and widowhood, but there's only one key that will unlock this passage. If you put any other key in, it will not unlock. But if you ask the question, can only the lonely truly be holy, then the passage will unlock for you. And you will begin to understand this passage in light of all of the rest of Scripture. Otherwise, it seems like these passages don't mesh together with other biblical teaching. And so, what's the question? Can only the lonely truly be holy? Said another way, is celibacy with our fellow man, the, the only way to intimacy with Almighty God? That's the question before them. Now, some saints, given the wild excesses of Corinth, wanted to throw the baby out with the bathwater and thought, surely that must be so. 
I want you to notice, we've said it before, that Satan always seeks to twist God's truth. And so to those saints in chapter 6, Satan was twisting truth towards an unbridled license leading to sexual promiscuity that was unbiblical. And here in chapter 7, there's a completely different kind of twisting towards unbiblical restriction that led to sexual repression that also wasn't God's plan for His people. Both groups are wrong, and both groups need to be set right. With that in mind, we've already invested two Sundays together in this passage, and we're going to conclude our time in 1 Corinthians 7 today, and we're going to finally answer the final portions of the question, can only the lonely be holy? And so if you would turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use our blue pew Bible in front of you. It should be on page 1214, page 1214 of the blue pew Bible. And so uh, as we turn to the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that word and ask him to bless our time together today. Father, we ask that you would take your spirit and speak to us from your word to make us into your people, that we would worship you not just with all of our heart and all of our soul, but also with all of our mind, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds through washing ourselves in the word. It is easy to fall off to the left to licentiousness in chapter 6 and to the right to repressiveness in chapter 7, and instead you want us to be right in the middle with holiness and joyousness. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that this would be a a, a fitting conclusion to critical questions that still plague Christians today. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would blow out the cobwebs where the spider has tried to create challenges and get certain saints caught in a sticky web, a web of where we are unable to be content in our singleness or in our marriage, in our engagement or in our widowhood. We pray that we would be liberated by the one who is above all of that and knows the truth in all of that. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, there's 40 verses, so buckle up. Here we go. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, remember the first six chapters of the book deal with problems that Chloe's people brought and said these things are causing problems in the church, and so there were problems of lawsuits and there were problems of all these different things. Now in chapter 7, the book is going to flip for the whole rest of the book towards a new issue, and it's questions from the congregation to their founding pastor, the Apostle Paul. And so here's the first question. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, here's their question. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Meaning, should we abstain to be holy? Uh, Paul writes, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife of her husband. So It's not just spiritual marriages, but true marriages in every sense and a one flesh relationship within those biblical marriages. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This isn't misogyny, this is mutual reciprocal giving of oneself for the other person's betterment. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control. That is, one of the purposes of marriage, not the chief purpose of marriage, but one of the purposes of marriage is to help us to be holy in a world that isn't. Verse 6, now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all people were as myself I am. Paul was single, but each one has his own gift from God. So singleness is a gift, just as a marriage partner is a gift. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. You're not second-class citizens. You're not defective. You're not unloved. You're not unlovely. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Given the condition of our world, uh, it may well be that the best thing for you is to find one in whom you are to be with. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Meaning the Lord didn't speak 
uh, on something he's going to talk about in another minute. But right now, uh, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. This is what Jesus taught. The wife should not separate from her husband. So if two believers are married, you, you ought not divorce each other. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now to verse 12. To the rest I say, not I, or excuse me, I, not the Lord. Not meaning this is less true than the first thing, but rather that Jesus never spoke about what happens to mixed marriages and unequally yoked people. To the rest I say, not, or I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Stay married. If, anyone, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Stay married. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. They're not made saved by the union, but they're not, the, the believer is not contaminated by this marriage. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So if the unbeliever wants out of the marriage, you don't have to keep them if uh, that will only lead to friction and problems. Let it be so, in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved, for how do you know, or excuse me, God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That is, just because you're married to them doesn't mean they're going to get saved. And so, if they want to go, you could let them go. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him. Oh, now the passage is going to take a shift, isn't it? It's moving to contentment under God's sovereignty. And that's important. That's where we're going to be today in verse 17 onwards. And to which God has called him. That is, God has put you in singleness or marriage or widowhood. He has providentially placed you. This is my rule in all the churches. You don't have to live in messed up Corinth for this to be true. This is for all Christians everywhere in every place, including North Jersey. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time that he was called already circumcised? That means he was a Jewish background believer. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. That is, don't try to hide your Jewishness. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? That is, you were a Gentile before you were saved. Let him not seek to identify with Jewishness through the circumcision. For neither circumcision counts nor any, uh, nor in, for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Friends, what counts? keeping the commandments of God. That's how you honor God, not by all these externals, but by these internals. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? That is, a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. That is, hey, it's better to be free, but if you have to be a slave, that's okay. For he who is called in the Lord is already a bondservant, is a free man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. So even those who were not literal slaves were all slaves to Christ if we're in Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So if you are a Christian and you have the opportunity to put yourself in slavery, don't do that. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, the engaged, we would say today, I have no commandment from the Lord. Why? Because the Lord didn't teach on this directly. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? That is, you're engaged. Well, don't seek to break off the engagement. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek to find that wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. That is, okay, if you do all of a sudden find that right person for you, it's just fine to get married. That's not a sin. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would like to spare you of that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short, and from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For this present form of this world is passing away. That is, our primary allegiance is to the eternal kingdom of God and building the kingdom of God and not the temporal movements of man. We live in this world, we have to be part of this world, but our primary allegiance and citizenship is in heaven. He says this interesting statement in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. That's how it works in New Jersey, right? Most people here are free from anxiety. The Bible's desire for you. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. 
and therefore his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. He's not saying you can't get married or marriage is bad. He's just saying it is what it is. And marriage, while wonderful, also contains its own challenges and its own restrictions. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion in the Lord. That's always the goal. Married or single, widowed or whatever, undivided devotion to Jesus. Verse 36, if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It's no sin. Meaning, better to marry someone than to do something you shouldn't do with someone. You following there? Okay. Verse 37, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and is determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. You can marry, you cannot marry. It's just fine. Then he who marries his betrothed, his engaged as well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband for as long as he lives. It's until death do us part. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes. Here's the only caveat, and it's true for every Christian every time. Here's the phrase, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. We'll have to unpack that today. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as he is, she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. All right, so let's review. We've had two Sundays together, and so let's review where we've been. It's in your bulletin. Uh, we've learned two weeks ago to the married that God considers the marriage bed holy, and it is a God-given source of special pleasure between the husband and the wife. In the decision to get married, we are deciding to give our spouse our, their God-given conjugal rights. If you're deciding to get married, you're no longer deciding to be celibate, you're deciding to give yourself to that other person. Point C, our bodies are not our own, they are first the Lord's, and they are secondarily our spouses, and we're last. This isn't a new commandment, all through scripture, God is first, the other second, and we are last. It's just an extension into our marriages. D, God intends for the marriage bed to be a powerful assistance in our holiness in a world full of sexual brokenness. E, husbands and wives are not to deprive each other of this gift unless briefly by mutual consent, both of you agree, and for a spiritual purpose. F, two believers divorcing to become single does not make you more holy, it makes you less. So that was stinking thinking on their part. G, a, a believer married to an unbeliever is not defiled by that union, nor are there children, but rather it affords opportunities to shine for Christ and perhaps persuade them to come to Christ. H, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, and that unbeliever wants to leave the marriage, the Christian should permit them, for God has called us to peace, and your presence in the marriage is no guarantee they will get saved either way. Okay, then we talked about God's teaching to the unmarried. I think that was last week. Uh, to the unmarried, A, consider if God has gifted you for singleness. We have the assumption that everyone must get married. That is not the New Testament's assumption. Hmm. So B, if so, you should prayerfully consider God's strategic kingdom purpose in your singleness. If God has not assigned you to be married, then he has a particular purpose for that particular status, and you ought to maximize that for the glory of God. C, marriage has its own challenges and is no panacea. In all of the movies with Hugh Grant and whomever, they end happily ever after because they don't come back a year later. The movie always stops at the wedding and fun hasn't even really begun yet. <laughs> you don't really know what marriage is until after you've been married a while. C. Marriage has its own challenges and is no panacea. D, if you determine that God's plan is not for you to be single, that it's clear in your heart that you're meant for a helpmeet, then you are to feel free to marry so long as you do it biblically, and that is in the Lord. We'll talk about that in a moment. And that brings us to point three. Point three is where we are today. And so we're going to speak now to the widowed. We've talked to the married, we've talked to the singled. What about to the widowed? Well, here it is, point A. As the covenant of marriage ends at death, the widowed are welcome to remarry, but only in the Lord. I'll say that again, then we'll explain it. As the covenant of marriage ends at death, 
The widowed are welcome to remarry, but only in the Lord. See, when you stand up at this altar, and many people have this year, and many people will this year, we say, until what do you part? Right, until I get bored of you, until I find a better offer. No, until, because the marriage covenant is a covenant unto, but if one of them passes away, the marriage covenant is no longer, because one party is no longer, and if that person then decides God is leading me to another helpmeet, that is perfectly biblically acceptable, they can remain single, or they can get married, as long as it's in the Lord. Look at verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes. Here's the caveat, only in the Lord. In Matthew 22:30, the Sadducees were trying to demonstrate in their mind the absurdity of the doctrine of the resurrection. And so they posed this ridiculous hypothetical question about a succession of husbands. Uh, so there's this widow, and she marries this guy, and he dies. And so then she marries this other guy, and she marries this other guy, and they all die, and she remarries and remarries and remarries. And they say, so okay, Jesus, whose wife is she? at the resurrection. Do you see that hypothetical question they're trying to trap him? And Jesus answered as Jesus does. You can't trick Jesus. You neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor give in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Meaning that, hey, you know what? In heaven, marriage doesn't matter. Marriage doesn't matter. Our marriage covenant ends with till death do us part. And so if your spouse has died and you're here today or you're here within the sound of my voice on the web um, and you are now widowed, you need to understand that you have the very same freedom as any other single person to marry or to not marry. Here is the only provisio and it's true for every single widowed or never married. It is this. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes and what are the next words? Only in the Lord. That's the key. So that is, this marriage you're pursuing, widowed or single, must be a marriage that God is ordaining. You know what the preacher says, right? What God has put together, let no man separate. It's not what two folks warm for each other's form with the urge to merge is put together. Do you follow? Okay, so... It must be a marriage God is ordaining. That is, it must be, at a minimum, a marriage between two believers. A marriage God is putting together is never a marriage of expedience, convenience, or economics. It, it, it must be God saying, I have a new helpmeet for you. This person is suitable for you. Where you have deficits, they have strengths. Where you have strengths, they have deficits. And the two of you can go together in harmony in a world of fragmentation. I have a new helpmeet for you, God is saying. That's God's good gift to you, if that's the case. And you have every freedom under heaven to enjoy that gift. But you also have the freedom to remain single if you desire. For a widow is free to be married to whomever she wishes, including nobody, but only in the Lord. Now some of the Corinthians were wondering, well, I'm engaged. I haven't yet gotten married, but we're planning on it. We've got a whole date and the whole thing, and we're, we're moving down that path. And, and you, you know, we're both Christians, and we both love Jesus, but maybe we should just stay single to stay more holy. Because remember, some of them thought that sex itself was bad, and married people tend to have sex, and so they were wondering if maybe they just shouldn't get married. So God has already told us in Scripture that the marriage bed is pure and undefiled because he's put this together, and he's authorized this one flesh relationship. He's made sex, and he's made sex for marriage, not for sex outside of marriage. And so... All of it, its intimacy and its ecstasy, is a God-given gift to the married parties. So in regards to the question, should the Christian forego engagement, should they forego marriage if they're engaged, we have point four. To the engaged, you are not less spiritual because you're choosing to marry. So after considering if you have the gift of singleness, if you do not, 
feel free to marry. Let's say that again, and we'll unpack it. You are not less spiritual because you are choosing to marry. So after considering if you have the gift of singleness, and if you determine, I do not, then feel free to marry. There are some people today that run around and say, well, I'm married to God, and you people marry each other. Hey, guess what? We're all supposed to be devoted to God. You can do that whether you're married or whether you're single. And you cannot be devoted to God whether you're married or single. Look at verse 36. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, he's speaking that they're getting involved in things they ought not get involved in, and it has to be, meaning, look, you think that this is the person, they love Jesus, they love you, but this is getting to be where it shouldn't be. Let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. Being married doesn't make us holy. Being single doesn't make us holy. Following God's clear leading in our life, that's what makes you holy. If you realize, I definitely don't have the gift of singleness. And that's true for most of us, isn't it? Because generally speaking, it's not good for man to be. So generally speaking, that will be how it is for most of us, but not all of us. And if you say, look, I don't have the gifts of singleness, and, and my fiancé doesn't have the gift of singleness, and we're both Christians, and we both see how God is leading us together, then go ahead and marry. Do as you are so led by your Lord. It's no sin. However, remember letter B today. Letter B. Be certain this spouse is God's spouse for you. Be certain this spouse is God's spouse for you. And if you are, proceed to the altar. If you have never seen The Princess Bride, you owe it to yourself to see that. I so want to do that every time I have to marry people. But I haven't yet. I'm not sure that that will always hold out. Be certain this spouse is God's spouse for you, and if you are, then proceed to the altar. We see this in verse 37. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and is determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So before you rush to the altar, you need to make sure this person is God's person for you because once you sign up you're supposed to be signing up for life that's God's plan for marriage marriage is not a disposable contract of convenience that's what people today think marriage is they they come into marriage with an unwritten hidden assumption let's marry until I lose interest or can find a better deal that's not marriage, friend. You see, marriage is a covenant to love the other person come what may. For richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, in un- incoming baldness and thickness. Right? That never happens, right? You, it won't happen to you. you know, when you were 20, you never predicted that. Although, okay. Uh, marriage is a commitment. It's a covenant before the Lord Jesus and the Lord's people, and it is not what June and Carter and and Johnny Cash sang about, where we got married in a fever hotter than a pepper sprout, and then we ran away when the fire went out. Gone to Jackson, name that tune. If you got it, you can buzz in. Can a situation arise, friend, where divorce is ever permissible? Yes, this passage isn't speaking primarily about that. Um, and so Jesus does speak on that. Uh, this passage is, can only the lonely be holy. So yes, a situation could arise in a marriage where biblical divorce is biblically permissible. Uh, but should we get married with this sort of front understanding, well, there's this backdoor escape hatch if, if this doesn't go the way I think. If we go from roses to radishes, <laughs> then I'm going to pull the escape hatch and fly away. No. That's not how you should look at marriage. Which brings us to point C. To get married, or to remain single, to remain unmarried, so long as it is God's will, is the right choice for you, no matter what anyone else says. Say that again. Uh, uh, To get married, or to remain unmarried, so long as it is clearly God's will for you. That's the right choice, no matter what others may think. You see, many well-intentioned Christians pressure other Christians to get married. Many Christian parents are quite adept at this. 
But to get married or to be single, so long as it is God's will, is the right choice no matter what anyone, including your parents, say. Listen to verse 38 and get it straight. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Just because somebody else wants grandkids doesn't mean you should marry Larry from the Three Stooges because now you're stuck with a stooge for the rest of your life. They're not, you are. You are. So let the Lord lead you in marriage or singleness. We, we call Him the Lord Jesus because He's supposed to be Lord over us. It is never to be societal expectation nor the concerns of well-meaning Christians, nor even pressure from your own parents that ought to drive you to the altar. It should be the clear leading of the Lord Jesus Christ for what God has put together. Let no man separate. Now that being said, if your singleness is a cover for licentiousness, for wantonness, if it is a, a, a cover so you can have extended unholiness, hey friend, the Bible says the solution for you is not to play the field, it's to join a team. God's direction for the Christian who's struggling with temptation is to marry, so you can harness your God-given passions in a biblically sanctioned direction. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Sadly, we live in a day where we push marriage way off, and sometimes that's of the Lord, and sometimes it's just because our society has decided that's how we're going to do it. Many of our singles like to say, I'm going to stay single until I have it all together. They delay marriage until they have all of their degrees, even if it's a PhD, until they have saved up enough for a down payment or bought their own home, until they have ticked off enough items on their bucket list. Uh, they have climbed Mount Everest and backpacked through the Redwood Forest. And suddenly, they've had a protracted period where they weren't meant to be single, but they're really tempted, right? And that's not God's formula either, and that leads to a whole lot of pain and problems. Friends, both delaying marriage and rushing into marriage can be equally rejecting the Lord's calling. The key is always following the Lord's leading in wherever, whenever, however, and whomever He is leading you to marry. Which brings us to our final point, point five, point five today, to all of us, to all of us. For most people, for most people, God's plan is for us to marry, and this union is a blessed assistance in remaining holy. For most people, God's plan is for us to marry, and this union is a blessed assistance in remaining holy. We see this in verse two. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. There it is. For most of us, most of the time, it is not good to be alone. If we have our own God-given gardens, we're going to be much less likely to eat forbidden fruit. Amen? Going back to the Old Testament, if we drink from God's cistern, you don't grow thirsty and do something hasty. But for most people, therefore, God's plan is for us to marry, and this union is a blessed assistance in remaining holy. Verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, what's true for most people is not true for all people. Amen? Brings us to letter B. For some saints... God's plan is for them to remain single and use the special freedoms from marital and parental commitments to serve the Lord in special ways. For some saints, God's plan is for them to remain single and to use the special freedoms from marital and parental commitments to serve the Lord. And so look at verse 27 through 35. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. 
Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she hasn't sinned. Let those who marry, uh, yet those who marry will have worldly problems. And I want to spare you of that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and let those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Meaning, uh, you can get swept up in all of this life, but really you're supposed to be building towards the kingdom of God, which is eternal. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Verse 32, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not laying any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided attention and devotion to the Lord Jesus. So, single saints have wonderful freedoms that married saints forfeit when they get married. Did you hear that? What do married saints do? They forfeit certain freedoms. So some of you are having challenges in your marriage because one of you isn't forfeiting. You've chosen to come together, but you will still want to live apart in certain ways. Single saints have wonderful freedoms that married saints forfeit in choosing to marry. Marriage is good. So is singleness. Singleness is a gift, and you ought not look that gift horse in the mouth. You ought to grab that gift by the reins and harness the gift of singleness to the glory of God. That's what this text says, doesn't it? Very clear. And if that's not God's plan for you, if you're single right now because God hasn't sent you that spouse, you don't have the gift of singleness, and you're waiting, then point C is for you today. Point C, if we decide to marry, it must be in the Lord. It must be in the Lord. What does that mean? That means it must be to another Christian who's seeking to honor Jesus. And not all Christians are seeking to honor Jesus. It must be in the Lord, which means it's to another Christian, another born-again believer, who is also pursuing Jesus. Verse 39, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. So what does it mean to be only in the Lord? Well, it means to be, as Scripture says in other places, to be equally yoked. You've heard that, right? And the imagery there is you put two animals together and you ride them into where they're going to go. You have a wagon and you hitch the two together. You know the old phrase, we're getting hitched, right? And so you'd hitch these two animals together. Okay. To be equally yoked, you cannot take a horse and a pig, tie them together, and hope that one doesn't destroy the other. Some... Some horses marry pigs, don't they, friends? Yeah. You cannot pull the family to wagon together at the pace and in the race that God wants you to do if a horse marries a pig. There is inherent incompatibility. And that's going to tear each other apart when they try and move where? In the direction of their natural inclination and affection. The horse wants to plow, and the pig wants to root in the mud. It will become a divided house from the moment it is founded. Friends, we know a thing or two about houses that are divided. They're very hard to make stand, amen? So instead of union, a union of unity under Jesus' authority, there will be a conflict of direction and affection, and that is not God's intention for your decision. What specifically does it mean to be equally yoked? Okay, At a minimum, it means a horse is yoked to another horse. That is, a believer has only biblical freedom to marry another believer. You have no biblical right to marry a non-believer if you're a believer. You have none. We see this explicitly in 2 Corinthians 6.14, where the Scriptures declare... Do not be unequally yoked with who? Unbelievers. 
Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with the unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now we're going to see this implicitly in 1 Corinthians 9.5. It's explicit in 1 Corinthians 6. It's implicit in 1 Corinthians 9.5. In 1 Corinthians 9.5, Paul says, do we not have the right as an apostle to take on a, a believing wife as do the other apostles? See, he had every right to receive support for his ministry and for them to support his family. He says, do we not have every right to bring along not just a wife, but a believing wife? And indeed he did. God had called him to singleness, so he didn't. But he had the right. You see, believers are only authorized by the Lord Jesus to marry other believers. Any other decision is a violation of the Lord's clear direction, and that's why this church won't marry two people unless they're born again. And some people don't like that, and I'm sorry for that. But I only have the authority to marry based on the authority of the Lord Jesus. It's his church, not my church. Believers are only authorized by the Lord Jesus to marry other believers. Any other decision is a violation of the Lord's clear direction. That means it's a transgression. That means it's a sin. It's not just unwise. It's not just unbiblical. It's an offense against Jesus who loves us and He wants the best for us. I don't know how to say it any more clear, plain, and straight, but one day there's going to be somebody that thinks they know more than Jesus. And I'm going to tell you right now, you don't. And I've had too many people in 25 years cry in my office because they made decisions they can't unmake and it was never God's decision. Now they have to make the best of being pulled by a pig into the mud every day. Please don't marry a pig. Now, if you found yourself in that situation... You need to listen to last week's sermon because the passage addresses it. If you already found yourself in that situation, God isn't saying turn tails and run and make things undone. He is not. But rather, you need to lean on the Lord's grace in that space. But if you are right now thinking of marrying an unbeliever, you need to stop listening to the voice of the deceiver. That is not God's plan for you, and you go down this road to your own personal peril. And I'm sad to say many saints have made that decision. They thought they knew better than Jesus, but they didn't. You see, friends, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus knoweth the way because he is the way. Jesus is the only wise God. Be very careful who you let into your heart. Because the Bible says the heart is deceitful above everything. And desperately sick, who can know it? Matters of the heart if left to run on their own, well, they can cloud matters of faith and they will make matters of obedience near impossible. And so I'm going to say this, and it's unpopular, but I think it's true. You ought not date unbelievers. Why do you date people? Because you might want to marry them. What happens when you date people? Sometimes you fall in love. Hey, sometimes evangel dating works out. And that's always what everybody goes, well, so-and-so was, was dating a pig and the pig became a horse. Of course. And let me tell you, it's the exception that proves the rule. If I take a hammer and I hit my hand, most times it's going to hurt. One time I might miss. Yay! The other 50 times I'm going to practice my sanctification. Christians, you need to understand, you can befriend anyone. You ought to share Christ with everyone, but you should only date believers. And you should only date those who are as keen to follow Christ as you are. You see, two horses can be linked together. But if one is an obedient Clydesdale ready to pull for the Lord with all their might towards the Lord's goals and the other is a disobedient kind of nag who kicks and bucks and is forever pining to go its own way, then I'm going to tell you what, you're not equally yoked even though you're both horses. I get people who go, wow, they got saved 34 seconds ago when you told them you had to do that to be married at Calvary. I said, why don't we wait a while and see if they're saved or if they're just conveniently saved. And even if they are saved, if you're white hot for Jesus and they're lukewarm, you're going to have a problem. You see, being a Christian is the minimum requirement, not the maximum requirement in what it means to be equally yoked. 
Say you find somebody who's another believer. Well, that's great, but that's just the minimum you should be looking for. If you are both on fire for Jesus, that's fantastic. But if you're on fire for Jesus and the other person says, I'd rather be at the shore than in Jesus' house, are you equally yoked? Probably not. So what are you going to do when you are yoked? Possibly not be in Jesus' house. The best advice I ever heard on marriage is this, and I've said it before, but I hope you hear it. Here's what you need to do if you're single today and you want to get married. You run after Jesus with everything you've got. You run with all you have, and then when you stop and you catch your breath and you go, you look to your left and you look to your right and you see who kept up following Jesus and think about marrying that person. Because there's a good chance you're equally yoked. Two people on fire for Jesus have a foundation in marriage that few problems can unseat. Amen? But two people lukewarm for Jesus may find a hundred reasons to falter after coming to this altar. Friends, marriage is a glorious and God-given gift, but on another level, it is this. It is two sinners stuck together side by side till one of them dies. So pick your sinner carefully. Make sure that it's God's best for you, not merely some expedient in the moment or you may painfully regret it. And that brings us to point D. Point D is again a point for everyone. Being married or being single is no more or no less spiritual in the eyes of God. However, our contentment in whatever our situation is. Say that again. Being married or being single is no more or no less spiritual in the eyes of God. However, our contentment in whatever our situation, well, that is the definition of being spiritual. Look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him. Doesn't matter if you're married, single, betrothed, engaged, widowed, whatever. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Jewish. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision and hide his Jewishness. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? A Gentile. Let him not seek circumcision and try and make himself look Jewish. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? That is, were you a slave? Don't be concerned about it. If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord is already a bondservant, is a freedman of the Lord. For it's for freedom you've been set free. Likewise, he who was free when called is, is automatically a bondservant of Christ because you were bought with a price. But don't become bondservants of other men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Whatever your external condition as a Christian, rich or poor, slave or free, Jewish background, Gentile background, use your background for Jesus. And remember, you are more than just your background. Your primary identity isn't that you're Italian or Norwegian or rich or poor or from New Jersey or whatever. Smart, dumb, jock, not. That's not your primary identity. Your primary identity, according to the Bible, is you are a child of the king. That is your primary identity. That means that it's not primarily you're a subject of Rome. As children of the king, we represent God's kingdom, for we are his ambassadors, and he is making his appeal through us among the Norwegians and Italians and the people you work with and your neighbors and your friends and the New Jerseyans and everyone else in between including the person you hand your taxes to on the 15th when you're not at your best. That person might need Jesus. So let's be careful to keep the commandments of God so that we shine like stars in a wicked and depraved generation, pointing folks to the light of this world because this world is caught in darkness right now. Satan was whispering to the Jewish background believers, boy, if you were only a Gentile like everybody else, there's just a few of you Jews in this church, if you were just a Gentile, then you could be really useful as a Christian here in Corinth. And they were tempted to undergo a crude, painful procedure called epispasm, so that when they went to the Roman public baths that everyone went to, they would not be identified by their Jewishness. To the Gentiles, Satan would also whisper, hey, if you were only a Hebrew, 
you would be better rooted in the faith, you'd be more valuable to the faith. Aren't all the apostles basically Jewish? But you're not. So you should maybe fix that. Friends, our first birth is of no consequence to our service to Jesus. It is our being born again that matters. Whatever your ethnicity, nationality, industry, or hobby, you need to use those things for Jesus. Don't let Satan tell you it's an excuse why you can't. The slaves thought, well, I really can't do something for Jesus because I don't even have control over where I go and what I eat and what I do. If I was free, then I guess I could really be useful. Paul says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. For he who was called in the Lord is a slave, is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Whatever your earthly status, it pales to your eternal status. So be content with where God has put you and be intent on using where he has put you to the glory of God in this grand redemption story for you are his ambassadors. And he wants to make his appeal through you. Your situation is no accident. The Bible says as much. It says it is God's providential intent who you are and why you're here at this time. You might want to write in your Bibles next to this passage, Acts 17, 26. Acts 17, 26. Because Acts 20, 17, it, uh, Acts 17, 26 is clear on this. The Bible says, From one man he made every nation of men so they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. You're here in your industry, in your hobby, in your proclivity, in your ethnicity, in your nationality to be an ambassador for Jesus tomorrow. Where you live and whatever your current situation in is not the issue. The issue is, are you using these opportunities for the glory of God? Are you a nurse for Jesus? Are you a quilter for Jesus? Are you a runner for Jesus? And are you content in that context? You see, 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, friends, did you know Paul not only preached this, he lived this? In Philippians 4.11, the Apostle Paul says this, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to be abounding. In, any, in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that chiefly has to do contextually, as John Mealy could tell you, with contentment. How do you be content in a world that is relentless, that you would not be content? Whole advertising industry is based on you need something else. The answer is, through Christ. I can learn to be content. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Christ can enable us to be content in our current context. We can do this through Him who strengthens us. So that means if you're here today and you are longing to be married, if you are widowed and you feel somehow your status is lesser because you're a widow, if you're married and you hunger for your former freedoms, if you're a mom or a dad and you miss the ability to go out to dinner in a movie without having to, 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 to find and pay for a sitter only to scupper the evening because little Johnny has a fever that day. Because he always has a fever that day. Date night, right? If Satan is whispering, your life would be better. Bad enough. There's a lie in your head that has said, I could serve Christ better if it were not for this. I could experience the release of God's peace and enjoy His joy if only I had that spouse or at least didn't have this one. 
Friends, hear the word of the Lord from you today. Being married or being single is no less spiritual in the eyes of God. However, our contentment in our situation, that's what matters to Jesus. There's one final principle in regards to our contentment, and it is this, letter E today. Contentment does not preclude our betterment. Contentment does not preclude our betterment. God is not consigning us to some kind of fatalism. Contentment does not preclude our betterment because God is not consigning us to some kind of fatalism. Verse 21, were you a bondservant that is a slave when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. What's he saying? Be content as a slave, but you don't have to remain intent to be a slave. Be content where you are, but the doctrine of contentment doesn't preclude our advancement. And so what does that mean? Let's put it just in a very basic way. If you're a bus driver today, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a bus driver, you're getting up and doing the job that God has assigned to you, nobody should look down at you, they should not think more, less of you, you are going and you're doing something that is productive in society. If you are a bus driver, and, then you should be content, thank God that I have a steady job. But, if God is putting on your heart that you need to go to night school, because you really don't want to be a bus driver, you want to be a computer programmer. You don't want to have people say the fair is unfair. You'd rather be in a cubicle and never talk to anybody. That's what you'd rather do. That's okay. Then you can go to night school. And you can prepare for something better. You just have to remain content in the now. Okay? The doctrine of Christian contentment does not preclude our betterment. The scriptures actively call the Christian to improvement. In the Old Testament, Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise but the companion of fools will suffer harm. The idea is you ought to be around people who are wise, and you ought to listen to their wisdom. You ought to seek out people who are going to better you, but if you hang out with those who lack wisdom, you're going to probably be tempted to join in their foolishness. And in the New Testament, there's an even more explicit call to our betterment, not just vocationally or socially or intellectually, but friends, spiritually, we ought to be moving forward. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. You can write that down on the margin of your Bible. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8 says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter ends his final letter to God's people with this final charge to continual betterment and improvement. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought not try to seek the betterment. Or we ought not just try to seek the betterment of ourselves. The Bible also says we should try and be a catalyst to help our neighbor grow in the Savior. Hebrews 10.24 implores us, let us consider how to stir one another up. That's why you got to one another. That's why you got to come to the, to the fest and sit next to somebody. That's why you got to go to a small group. Stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Because friends, as the day approaches, it gets darker before the dawn. And so the saints need to be a light to one another when they get scared and wanting to turtle instead of shining. The outworking of the gospel in our lives is not just spiritual, it's also very practical. Ephesians 4.28 makes this clear. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so he may have something to share with anyone in need. See, the presence of the Holy Spirit ought to change us. Lazy thieves... Become hard-working, honest employees for Christ. Have you seen that happen? I've seen that happen. Selfish people become sharing people. Spenders become savers. And savers save to give instead of just to hoard. Friends, are you starting to see what our sermon series in Corinthians is all about? Are you starting to see God's messy grace project? how He's turning worldly sinners into heavenly saints as we yield ourselves to His wisdom and His Spirit and His work in our life. So no, it's not only the lonely who can be holy. To be holy is the call of everybody. And each of us in our various stations, 
ought to harness those stations and situations as opportunities to shine for Jesus, to share Jesus, and to bring glory to Jesus this week in those situations. To those ends, let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to see that it's not our external circumstances that determine our joy. It's our yieldedness to You. Help us to be content in all circumstances. Help us to shine for You in whatever our circumstance today, single or married, widowed or engaged. Help us to wait patiently on You if You intend to alter our circumstances. If we're single and longing for a partner, give us the strength to not settle, but to wait for Your best to come to us. If we're married, help us to focus on being the spouse you want us to be, not on the things we think our spouse ought to be. Help us to shine for you that we may deeply impact them. Help us to be a catalyst for blessedness in our marriage and not just expect them to be that for us. Father, please remind the widow that they are loved, that they are not second-class citizens, that you are the defender of the widow and the orphan, and there are no second-class seats in the chariot to heaven. Help them to find unique ministry outlets in their widowhood, and if you so lead, help them to consider if you have another for them in the future, but only learn to let us be content in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. Amen.